Well, it's definitely a joy to be uh, up here and have the opportunity to open the word with you. If you would, open to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at uh, various texts tonight, and so we'll, we'll be going through a bit. And actually, I just want to read a text from Genesis 2 and then a text from Revelation 22 and show you that our Bibles begin in a very similar way that they end. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Turn with me to the end of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 22. Beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the living God. I want us to look at the topic of heaven tonight. Name of this sermon, if it's got to have a title, is Paradise Restored, the Christian Hope of Heaven. Some of you um, lovers of literature, also known as book nerds, will know the name John Milton. Arguably the greatest English author of all time. It shouldn't surprise you then that his masterpiece, Paradise Lost, is considered to be one of the greatest works of literature ever written. It took him over six years to write Paradise Lost. And it's a remarkable feat. It's a a compilation of 10 books, a poem of 10,000 lines. It's fascinating because it recounts the journey of Satan after his fall from heaven. Entering into the Garden of Eden, where he approaches mankind and seduces Eve to rebel against God. Of course, she gives in 
and quickly her husband, Adam, follows, and sin enters the world. And so does shame, guilt, fear. It enwraps Adam and Eve in the revelation of how they have defied their maker. But in Milton's Paradise Lost, um, of course, it's from the perspective of following Satan's journey. So it follows him back to his lair with his devils. And there he boasts of what he's accomplished. The apex of God's creation, humanity, followed me and defied Yahweh. His devils praise him. There's a line where Satan says this, Amply have merited of me of all the infernal fire so that so near heaven's door triumphal with triumphal act have met mine with this glorious work and made one realm, hell and this world, one realm, one continent of easy thoroughfare, boasting that he's brought hell to earth and has made the channel between them an easy one. Satan has dominion in Eden, and the premise of Milton's book, Paradise Has Been Lost. Adam and Eve are then condemned to exile from the garden, but not before they get a a visit from a messenger, Michael the archangel sent by God, of course in this fictional account, to remove Adam and Eve out of the garden. And before removing them, he decides to take Adam to the top of a high mountain. Michael the archangel puts Eve to sleep and he has a conversation with Adam. He gives Adam this prophetic survey of what is to come because of what he's done. He shows him in this vision-like moment the the killing of Abel by his son, Cain. And he walks him through in a very graphic and dramatic scene, the destruction and the pain and the agony that his sin has brought into this world. He tells him of the flood where all of humanity would be drowned by God, but for eight. Adam is shocked. Yet, yet I think in, in Milton's fascinating fictional tale, I, I don't think Adam could quite fully grasp just how horrific the devastation would be. I don't know if Adam could really picture thousands of years of human history of biting and devouring and pillaging and destroying one another. Could he really picture the the genius of mankind to elaborately design and create a bomb which would incinerate millions? I don't know if Adam could have fully grasped the war in Ukraine or the feeling of walking through a children's hospital. You know, Milton, the author, he certainly knew that paradise had been lost. 1652 was a very hard year for John Milton. In March, having just turned 43 years old, he went completely blind. 
in May. His wife gave birth to their fourth child, and three days later, she died. In June, his third child and his only boy would follow her to the grave. Milton knew that paradise had been lost. And I know that you know that as well, don't you? I mean, experientially. You know that we're not in Eden. You feel that. Every day, you feel that. This is theology in the wild. It's not theology in the zoo. Or theology tamed in the tame world. It's theology in the wild. But if we really think about the reality of this world being wild, life is hard, isn't it? You didn't expect to lose her, and she was gone. You didn't expect your life to take you this way, and here you are. It's, it's everything you thought your life wouldn't be. Or, or the, 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 the diagnosis that caught you off guard and, and derailed all of your plans. Friend, if we're honest, you, you think about the own disruption in your soul. Is your soul tamed? How often do we do what we don't want to do? The very thing we hate. Sin once again. Getting the best. This world, as, as much as there is to enjoy and delight in, the wild part of this world is agony, pain, poverty, emptiness, and depression. Some of, some of you didn't get the diagnosis, and everything's going great for you circumstantially. You've got the money, you've got the health, but there's something missing, and there's an emptiness which gnaws at you, and you, you, you try to fill it, and there's just nothing satisfying. Friend, you and I, we know that paradise has been lost. This isn't how it was in Eden, we are not living what we were designed to live. In Milton's masterpiece, um, here we are at the top of this mountain. Eve is asleep and Michael the archangel is, is walking Adam through human history and the devastation that is to come. But before Michael wakes Eve and walks him out of the garden, Michael tells Adam of a theme that will emerge in human history. The theme of redemption. He begins to tell him about Moses leading the people from Egypt and Joshua into Canaan. And these historical figures and patriarchs begin coming up in conversation as, as Michael the archangel ultimately leads Adam to the hope of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ himself, who would put an end to the destruction and devastation that Adam ushered into the world. And Adam responds with hope. In fact, he understands so hope-filled that he sees his actions of sin as ushering in the possibility for mankind to live eternally with God and actually gives thanks for that. My sin has paved the way for there to be a redeemer. And Adam wakes Eve 
and follows the archangel out of the garden. My friends, Adam left with hope in Milton's story. But though the story is fictional, we see in scripture the reality that we too must hope. The hope that one day it won't be this way, that one day the curse will be reversed and the devastation restored, that this broken world will be fixed and we will live eternally with God. Friends, that is the hope that the Bible describes as heaven. It's the hope of heaven. But even as I say that word heaven, some of you are in your minds thinking of a misconceived heaven. I doubt anybody here is thinking, um, you know, babies on clouds. Maybe you are. Um, I doubt it. Like baby angels. Um, I don't know. What, what are the, some other misconceptions? Um, uh, golden streets, you know, where we're sitting around going, you know, gold wasn't actually really a warm, cozy color. It's kind of like bright and austere. No, heaven isn't this, um, you know, eternal floating in the sky. Nobody, I don't think, I mean, if you listen to one J-Mac sermon, like you download some theology and you, you get it. But, but even with our understanding of heaven, I do think, maybe intellectually, but maybe more so practically, you do have a misconception of heaven. In that you think heaven is merely something for the future. And so because it's for the future, it it doesn't require you to focus on it now. But heaven, friends, heaven is actually the hope of paradise restored. And what that means is it has everything to do with your life today. And here's how. The greatest tragedy of paradise lost was mankind's relationship with God being broken. And so all of the blessings of being in relationship with God were cut off from humanity. That's why this is theology in the wild. This world is broken. Pain, suffering, and sin are daily reminders that we are cut off from our life source, that we are cut off from our satisfaction, our creator, our sustainer, the one whom we were made to enjoy. You have reminders of that every day when you defy him. This is not how it was meant to be. And that is the greatest tragedy of paradise being lost, losing that relationship. And what we discover in scripture teaching us about the hope of heaven is that God is rebuilding paradise. He's restoring things to the way they were meant to be, meaning, friends, he is bringing us back to himself. But that happens in stages. The restoration of paradise happens in stages. And I want us to discover those stages of restoration tonight. Because I I want you to leave here with the hope of heaven. Some of you have never been introduced to that hope. So there are some of you here who are still hoping in the things of this broken world. Um, One of the tragedies of this broken world is that we have a faint glimmer of 
the glory and the beauty of even the created realities. And yet, because we have divorced our experience of even the physical from the creator who gave it to us, they can never satisfy us in themselves. And so your hope, having not yet been introduced to the hope of heaven, is still that down here you'll find satisfaction. I'll find satisfaction in this, in this relationship, in this pursuit of pleasure, in this feeling, in this possession, in this position, in this, in this uh, um, um, reputation, if I can only climb the ladder, there I'll find satisfaction. I've got bad news for you, and it's, there's a theologian by the name of Little Wayne. Sproul was right. We're all theologians. He said this, um, I climb the ladder and I get to the top and the top gets higher. You know how you thought the ladder was five steps and then you get there and someone goes, nope, zhoop, five more steps. Okay, if I only get there, satisfied. So, some of you are still there. I don't know in what way, but, but you do. May, may the Holy Spirit right now convict you if you are deceived, that you're still trying to find hope here. Others of you have been introduced to the hope of heaven, to paradise restored, but you need this message as well because you forget it and we get so distracted. There is a very real category of Christian that has helped me, um, the distracted Christian. There's so much to distract us, isn't there? from your phones and and sort of cheap distractions, but even more meta, like your pursuit in life. Like, well, this is the American dream. I've got to accomplish A, B, and C. And so you're not distracted like on Instagram. In fact, you may have deleted Instagram because you've got a bigger distraction to consume you. And you love Christ and maybe you're not even aware of it, but you've, you've grown distracted. You need to be reminded of the hope of heaven. I've got an outline here, um, three points. Um, The restoration of paradise or heaven begins when you meet Jesus. That's point number one. Point number two, the restoration of paradise or heaven continues when you die. Point number three, the restoration of paradise is complete when you enter the eternal state. So let's talk about it. Point number one, the restoration of paradise begins when you meet Jesus. Milton wrote of it, um, Michael telling Adam that a Messiah was coming. God would pursue rebellious humanity and make a way for restoration. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, don't we? In the sacrificial system. God was giving us a a picture, a portrait that was pointing to the Messiah. You can think about the sacrificial system in the old covenant as God setting up billboards. They themselves were not the destination, but they were saying beach, 30 miles, beach, 20 miles, beach, five miles, pointing to Christ. And then the, the final billboard, beach, 
0.0 miles. As John the Baptist in John chapter 1 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ entered the wilderness of this world to be the sacrificial lamb, to reunite us with our creator, to restore relationship to us. I always think it's interesting. This is maybe a little aside, but in Mark chapter one, I was thinking about wilderness. um, And it's just an interesting note in, in Mark chapter one, verse 12, the spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And listen to this. And he was with the wild animals. Why does Mark say that? I think one of the reasons is just to emphasize this isn't Eden. David named the, or Adam named the animals and the lion lay with the lamb. When Jesus came to earth, these animals were wild. But he came so that we could be reunited with our maker. And this is where paradise begins to be restored. Now, I do want you to turn to John chapter 17. We see this in Jesus communicating with his father in the high priestly prayer. And in the opening three verses, look at what Jesus says. He, lifting his eyes to heaven, says to the father, Father, the hour has come Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, eternal life is often a biblical phrase for heaven. When you think of eternal life, you often think of heaven and rightly so. Death is conquered. Life is restored. You see, that's what was lost in the garden, right? You you may surely eat of any tree in this garden, but of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat or you will surely die. And so to restore and turn back the destruction that took place in the garden, Jesus Christ gives eternal life. Death is conquered. The effects of devastation are being overturned. But notice how Jesus describes that eternal life in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they know you. He doesn't mean intellectually. He doesn't mean a just having awareness. Oh yeah, uh, Shema, God the Father, yes, Messianic figure, son, Jesus, yes, I know them. I know them. I know this answer. I know the answer. No, no, no. L- l- in fact, look down at verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you, know that you have sent me. This is the kind of knowledge that Jesus Christ has with God the Father in perfect intertrinitarian unity. This is such an intimate knowledge of relationship and communion and fellowship. And so Jesus Christ is not saying, oh, eternal life is knowing some facts. No, he's saying eternal life is wrapped in knowing a person. Friend, how can you know Jesus? 
not just know about him. I know gloriously so many of us in this room know the answer to that question. You know it, that it's not enough just to know about Jesus. It's not enough to just acknowledge the historicity and the truth of Jesus, but you actually have to place your faith and trust in Jesus. You get that, right? Faith, trusting in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf that you couldn't save yourself. You've got to have a change of mind. It means repentance. You're not, you're not good enough, and you never can be. But Christ is, and he accomplished for you what you could never accomplish for yourself. And now it's only left for you to trust him, to cast yourself upon him in faith. I want to give you an illustration of that, okay? This is faith. Now, you might be able to pick holes in this like any illustration. But imagine, imagine the, the, the building is burning. And you're stuck in a corner. And the walls are collapsing and the smoke is rising and you've got minutes to live. You want to know what faith is? Faith is simply entrusting yourself to that big guy who runs through the flames with fireproof gear and fireproof, uh, whatever you call fireman's fireproof stuff. There's a word for it, I'm sure. And he's got a blanket, fireproof blanket. And he comes running through the flames, the flames untouched, and he goes, come with me. I'll wrap you in this blanket and I will carry you out. You want to know what faith is? Faith is this. You going, okay, carry me. And then he comes and picks you up. That's faith. It's Christ running through the the flames that were burning down your soul in depravity. Total depravity. You are engulfed in flames and the smoke is coming into your lungs. And at any moment, and you have no idea when it is, it's going to engulf you and kill you. And you can't get out. If you run in good works, try to run through the depravity of your soul, you're burned up. There's no out. And Christ comes through and says, I've done it. I've conquered the flames. Let me pick you up. And faith is simply the entrustment of going, okay. Not going, oh, I know there's a fireman and I know what his uniform is called. And I believe that he's standing in front of me. That's not enough. You've got to go. You've got to entrust yourself. And friends, what Jesus Christ did in coming to earth was he, he solved your sin problem. In order to reunite you with your creator. This is salvation. This is eternal life. That you enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the brokenness of your soul begins to be transformed, repaired, and renewed. You're turned from an enemy and a rebel into a friend and a son. Um, In that relationship, and I'm so glad that so many of you have experienced it, the, the rebellion that began in Eden, it begins to be restored into paradise again. The, the Edenic blessings begin to flow. 
Um, we see this corporately in the church. We see paradise being restored in a communal church experience where there's unity and diversity. So outside the church walls where people are destroying each other because your skin isn't like my skin. And your socioeconomic status is below mine or above mine. Or your, your nationality or cultural preferences or whatever. We find anything to divide on. Have you been on Twitter? Those walls of division are broken down in the church. And you begin to see this unity, which can feel at points like paradise, can it? Haven't you ever left the church and gone, this is a world of love. I love this place. Like this was, mm, I got to go back to work. Okay. But I just, I can't wait to be back in the, you're tasting paradise being restored. You, you taste it personally. Just read Galatians 5. When you come to know Jesus and all of a sudden, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control start to become the defining characteristics of your life, overtaking hatred, fear, anger, lust, greed, covetousness. You're seeing paradise being restored in your soul because the fruit of the spirit of God is now living within you. My friends, this is the brokenness being restored. But get this, these are mere inklings of Eden. Inklings. Because we're still broken and sin-filled, right? That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I groan while I'm in this body, longing to put on immortality. We still have our bodies. The earth is still cursed. Mondays are still terrible. But it's the first stage of restoration. Heaven begins the moment you meet Jesus. Many of you think, I want you to think about this. Many of you think, many of you in this room, some of you, I don't know, but some of you in this room think that heaven is only future and one day you'll get it. Now, if that's how you view heaven and you haven't experienced it today, you cannot expect to get it tomorrow. Because it comes in stages. And the first stage is meeting Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. That you know him. But the second stage is that the restoration of paradise or heaven continues when you die. In death, another dimension of Edenic paradise is realized or restored. And it's, and it's this, no more sin. No more sin. When we die, our souls are disconnected from our bodies and we are ushered into a state of being with God without these sinful bodies. It's the intermediate state. Um, a classic text uh, that maybe some of us think of immediately is the thief on the cross in Luke 23. 
When Jesus tells him, today, you will be with me in paradise. When you die and your soul is ripped from your body, hopefully not in a painful way, you'll be with Jesus. And in a greater sense than you are right now, because the sin-plagued body that your soul inhabits will be left behind. Not like Kirk Cameron left behind, I just mean like, like buried. Like, so you will be with God in unmediated, having unmediated access to God. Um, listen to this. You can turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says. Just longing for this experience to be with the Lord. Um, he says, I mean, if you read chapter four, just Paul's going through it, okay? He gets to chapter five and he's groaning. And he says in verse eight, we are of good courage. Like we're, we're fighting through all the pain of paradise lost on this earth. But listen to what he says. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So when you die, you get closer, you leave your body behind, and you get closer. This is why Paul says again in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23, turn to Philippians chapter 1, well, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. (laughs) Listen to Paul. He's about to have a a real... um, wrestle with himself that you and I always have the opposite of. Here's what I mean. We think we're really pious when we go, Lord, um, I'd really love to stay, but Lord, if you want to take my life, I'll, I'll go. Wow, he's willing to die for the Lord. Paul doesn't have that struggle. You know what he has is, Lord, I really want to go. Take me, please. Okay, fine, I'll stay. It's the exact opposite. Because he is so heavenly minded that he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, you want to really know what I want? You want to know what you want to get me for Christmas? Well, that would put you in trouble. But my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I want to go there. And then look what he says, for that is far better. That's stage two. Stage one is good, Christian. Because the experience of Christ, the the indwelling of the spirit in the soul of the believer, oh, that's good. But there's something better. It's to depart from the body and be with him in heaven. Now, we're not told a lot about the intermediate state in scripture. It's paradise. No more temptation. No more sin. You're with Jesus. And yet there's an incompleteness about it. That incompleteness is first shown in the fact that we're away from our bodies because that's not how God designed Eden, is it? He designed Eden physical. I mean, he made apples, guys, that that when you bite, it crunches, which is the worst sound to hear someone else is eating it, but it's so satisfying if you're eating it. He designed all of these beautiful realities that we see. The other day, I was uh, in this kind of like war with a hummingbird because I love hummingbirds, but every time I got close to film the hummingbird, it would fly away. So I tricked it and I went inside behind a glass. 
and then he didn't know I was there, which you'd think I could have done that sooner. It took me about 20 minutes to figure that out. But to see a, a hummingbird fluttering its wings, to, to taste the delicacies of whatever you like. God designed Eden to be physical. Um, there's a really interesting text, Revelation 6. We're told that in verse 9, John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for God and for the witness they had borne. They're, they're in glory. They're, they're with God, but they're just souls. And if you read on, they, they, they cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the earth and avenge our blood? There's this incompleteness about it. They're, they're asking God, God, won't you, won't you do something about the devastation? So we're not told a lot about the intermediate state, but it is paradise, but it's not complete. Third stage, heaven, the restoration of paradise is complete when you enter the eternal state. Friends, there is a final stage, one that encompasses every element of brokenness. Paradise in all of its parts, spiritual and physical, was lost in Eden. Which means that for God to fully vindicate his glory and to restore paradise fully, the physical as well as the spiritual must be fully redeemed. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we see the Apostle Paul giving us an insight into the hope of the Christian for the eternal final state of paradise restored. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation... Notice that word creation. Five times he'll say creation, speaking of the physical matter. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. You notice that he says, (laughs) We have the first fruits of the spirit. You know what he's saying is we've got stage one, but we're groaning for something more. And and that down payment of the spirit into the soul of the Christian is simply communicating something to you that there is a fuller hope coming. For in this hope we were saved, verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, there is a final redemption coming. And it will be dramatic. 
For the sake of time, I, I won't go through all of it, but Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 12 and 13, that this final state will begin by this earth being burned with fire. And creation will be set free from its bondage, the curse that has plagued it since Eden, and will obtain freedom. Now, I, I want us to see what that freedom will look like. Turn with me to Revelation 21. And we'll look at the first six verses. A description of the final state. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for those words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Look at verse or chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Notice that the curse is overcome. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. The the blessings are flowing. It sounds Edenic, doesn't it? That's why I started with chapter 2. Two of Genesis and ended with 22 of Revelation because it's the same picture being painted. But, but friend, I want you to realize that the blessings of the eternal state, though, though they will flow like Eden, the eternal garden will outshine and, and outbless the Edenic garden. Why? Be- because in Eden, there was the need for the physical sun to light the earth. Because even though God dwelled with man in fellowship, he was not there in the fullness of his presence. But in the eternal state, he is the blazing sun. This is theology in the wild. So I want to give you a little theological term, the beatific vision. I think Dr. Lawson probably spoke about it already. But the beatific vision it's, it's, it, it's meant to communicate this, the unmediated, the, the full, uninhibited apprehension of the beauty of God. 
Thomas Aquinas described it this way, the human being's final end in which one attains to a perfect happiness. It's what Paul was describing when he said that now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we will see him face to face. Moses caught a glimpse of beholding the glory of God, but he was hidden behind the cleft of a rock in Exodus 33. But even then, when he walked down the mountain, do you remember what happened to him? His face shining like the sun. But here in Revelation 21 and 22, we see the glory of God in the full resplendence of its glory, of its majesty. Look at 21 verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will be with them. They will be his people and he, God himself will be with them as their God. Again, in chapter 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the, la- the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and night will be no more. The Lord, their God, will be their light. My friends, our eternal destiny is to see God face to face in his radiant glory. Now, if looking upon Christ in the scriptures is transformative for you here, imagine how it will transform you there. If the word of God has revealed realities about God to a great degree that none of us can plumb the depths, imagine the transparent view of God we will have in the eternal state where our knowledge will only grow and abound knowledge upon knowledge upon knowledge. For eternity, year after year, millennia after millennia, every day, every moment, discovering greater realities about this God. And friends, that will transform our souls to love like we've never loved and to worship with a purity and a passion that we have never worshipped before. And here's something that the eternal state will have that Eden also didn't have. There will be no chance for anyone to ever write another poem called Paradise Laws. In Eden, there was an opportunity for Satan to invade. In the eternal state, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. And the expanse of our joy, our love, and delight will forever increase. I want to close with a little story about a a man, a Puritan named Richard Baxter. If you know a lot about Richard Baxter, ignore his legalism for a minute. If you don't know, um, forget I just said that. Baxter. In 1646, at 31 years old, he got sick. His illness forced him to spend several lonely months in a house away from his home and family. I think it was COVID. His condition was so grave that his physicians told him he was going to die. He was not going to return to see his loved ones. With his life ebbing away, 
he chose to spend his remaining days studying heaven. He writes, I began to contemplate more seriously on the everlasting rest, which I apprehend myself to be just on the borders of. He wrote down his reflections. It became a book. The Saints' Everlasting Rest. Actually, it became one of the books, one of 140 books that he would write over the next five decades. Sorry, yeah, five decades, 50 years. He, he thought he was going to die. He, he lived for 50 more years. He also thought that heaven was a meditation for the dying. And what he discovered is that it transformed his life. Heaven became his obsession. And for the rest of those five decades, it consumed him daily. And my friends, my exhortation to you tonight is to set your gaze on heaven and allow it to become your obsession. Because when it is, it will transform how you walk through today. Remember Paul? What a life that man lived. A life of the highest highs. You think you can parallel Paul career-wise? I mean, Lawson has said he's the second greatest Christian to Christ himself who walked on this earth. Um, Paul, one of the greatest, most brilliant minds God has ever created. He reached the peaks of success. He also reached the depths of despair. Stoned, whipped, rejected. Paul. And it was Paul who, when his eyes and mind were fixed on the obsession he had with heaven, was able to say, oh, these light momentary afflictions are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. What do you mean light? Have you seen a first century flogging? What do you mean momentary, Paul? 40 years you endured. Oh, but when his eyes were fixed upon heaven, Everything else was put in perspective. Friends, you will not be able to function in this wild, broken, devastated world if you are not obsessed with the world to come. Let's pray. Father, help us to not be so distracted. Help us, Father, to yearn for paradise restored today, tomorrow, for eternity. And Lord, I I pray that every single person would leave this room tonight having hope in that restoration. That not a soul would leave tonight continuing to find hope in the things that are fading. Help us, Lord. In the name of Christ, amen.